Hi, I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. Our guest today is author, speaker, and former chief curator of the Newark Museum in Newark, New Jersey, Ulysses Grant Dietz. Mr. Dietz, who retired from the Newark Museum at the end of 2017, after 37 years of service, is also the great-great-grandson of Civil War General and 18th President of the United States, Ulysses S. Grant. Mr. Dietz is here to share stories from his family tree and to tell us about his personal journey to learn about the life and heart of his famous ancestor and namesake. I'd now like to welcome Ulysses to our show. Welcome, Ulysses. Great to be with you, James. Ulysses, I'd like to start by asking you, where were you born and raised, and what are some of your early family memories? I was born and raised in Syracuse, New York, born in the mid-1950s and raised there in the 1960s. And I guess my real memories of my childhood, which given, given my life in the last year, I've spent a lot of time thinking about, really revolve around the idea that I lived this kind of idyllic, 1960s leave it to beaver childhood in a city but a small city far away from the hustle and bustle of New York where I've lived these last 40 years so it was a pretty normal semi-suburban upbringing unremarkable for all that but just what I needed. Ulysses did you have a lot of family around other than your immediate family aunts uncles grandparents who live nearby? Yeah, and and that was, I think, part of what made it so nice is that my family didn't live in Syracuse until 1940 and after. My family had a business in Syracuse, had a factory, but its headquarters was in New York City. So uh, this is all long before I'm born, is that my uncle marries a local girl and moves to Syracuse in 1940. And then my grandparents follow him after World War II. And then my mother and father get married and move there after World War II. And then finally, my great aunt, who lived in Greenwich, left Greenwich and moved up to Syracuse. So by the time I was born in 1955, I had this big circle of family, the whole bunch of cousins and grandparents across the street. So I had a a good family network entrenched in Syracuse when I was born. That's really good. Did you get to see each other a lot? Indeed, that was part of the fun of it. And I, I think it's, you know, it, again, it feels like through the light of nostalgia, it feels like something out of a movie. But because my grandparents lived across the street, we sort of established a rule that we saw them every day. During the weekday, during the work week, my father would come home and stop at my grandparents first. And by that point, my mother and whichever children were home, mostly me and my little brother, would be over there. And then, and this is, so much of this period and part of my family is that sort of the cocktail hour during the week became this ritual where we would all gather at 5.30 and have drinks and then everyone would go home to dinner. We didn't really have dinner with my grandparents very often. It was about this daily ritual. And so my aunt and uncle would come by, my great aunt Ethel, and then various other neighbors who knew them would stop in. So it was this kind of anchor through my childhood. That's really nice to hear because some people live far away from family and they don't get the opportunity to interact that much. Since you were around a lot of family, 
was there any discussion when you were a kid about the fact that you are the great great grandson of General Ulysses Grant, the Civil War general, and also the 18th president of the United States? Was there much discussion about that? Well, I would say I always disappoint people when I say this because basically, no, because one, I'm living in the bosom of the Dietz family. My name is Ulysses Grant Dietz, but I was called Grant from my birth. Uh, Ulysses was there, but it wasn't used. So I was very aware that I was named Ulysses. As a small child, the idea of having to spell Ulysses terrified me because making the capital G on Grant was hard enough. And so there was this understanding that I was named Ulysses, I was descended from a president, and I was named for my grandfather, Ulysses S. Grant III, but he wasn't there. He lived in Washington in the winters, and he and his wife, my grandmother Grant, lived in upstate New York in the summers, so I would see them in the summers, but they lived an hour away, so they weren't right close by. So I was really all about the Dietz family growing up, so we didn't talk about it. On the other hand, I also think there are other reasons. Having been a child that grew up in the 1960s, which was a moment when Ulysses S. Grant was probably at his nadir of popularity. And I will, and I'll put this pretty bluntly, that the false histories had been created around him and had been embraced by my family to the point, I think they purposely didn't talk about it because it had become problematic but also other issues. And so I didn't really, I was conscious of it, but it didn't make, it wasn't a big deal. The one time in my childhood that I remember this is my parents took me and my little brother to New York to see the Bronx Zoo. As part of that, they took us to Grant's tomb. And I was like six or seven and I had to sign in to the guest register. And the park ranger was really excited to meet someone named Ulysses. And I remember I couldn't spell Ulysses And I don't even remember what I went through, but that was the first time I'd sort of been publicly acknowledged by a stranger as being descended from the man lying in the tomb. I was pretty well sheltered from it, except during those summer visits to my grandfather in Clinton, New York. He and my grandmother lived on the campus of Hamilton College, where her family was from. So I had this kind of distant relationship with the Grants, and it was during those summer visits that I sort of got enveloped in that side of the family. So Ulysses, could you just tell me exactly how you are descended from General Ulysses S. Grant? I am one of the many great-great-grandchildren, although I guess our numbers are dwindling since I'm the youngest great-great-grandchild. But U.S. Grant and his wife, Julia Dent Grant, had four kids, Fred Ulysses Jr., who was known as Buck, Nellie, and Jesse who were all born in the 1850s. And Fred, the eldest child, followed his father to West Point, was with him at Vicksburg. Not that that matters right now, but Fred married a beautiful woman from Chicago named Ida Honore, and they only had two children, the oldest of whom was named Julia for her grandmother, and the second child, a son, was named Ulysses after his grandfather. So my great-grandfather, Fred, was very calculating in naming the first two grandchildren after the grandparents. And so Ulysses was my grandfather. Ulysses S. Grant III was my grandfather. And he married in 1907, and they had three daughters, sort of effectively ending the name Grant in that family. And my mother, Julia, was the youngest daughter. She was born back in 1916 during World War I. So 
that's why I'm only two greats because uh, I'm the youngest child of the youngest child. So it's uh, the generation stretched back very fast. It's an excellent genealogy summary of the Grant family. That's I can do it forwards and backwards. <laughs> <laughs> You're really, really good at it. So tell me about your education. What did you do? Where did you go to school? And what were some of your interests in life, Ulysses? Well, I, I look back on my childhood and think I was just a, another dumb kid growing up. Is again, this sort of leave it to beaver image, because I watched leave it to beaver in first run as a child. So it was all very familiar. So, you know, I went to public school through elementary school and junior high, as it was called back then. But then in 1970, when I was 15, I followed a different family tradition and went to boarding school. But I was the first person in my immediate family to go to, I went to the Phillips Exeter Academy in Exeter, New Hampshire. And I only bring that up partly because I really loved it when I was there as hard as it might be for people to imagine loving boarding school. I really was, I loved Exeter. I wasn't sent away to get me out of my parents' hair. I was sent away because it was a good school and I, I loved it. But coincidentally, U.S. Grant's second son, Ulysses, went to Exeter and also shares my birthday. So I always thought that I should have been descended from him <laughs> since we had so much in common. But anyway, but it was Exeter going away to boarding school was really interesting. And it, it came at an emotionally really critical time in my life. And there were all sorts of traumas going on then. And I'm caught up in the middle of it, but I'm also a teenager. So for some reason, when I go away to school, I decide to stop being Grant Dietz, which is the way I'm raised in Syracuse. I'm a Dietz whose first name is Grant. But then when I'm at Exeter, I become Ulysses Grant Dietz. So Ulysses begins to be part of my identity. And that's when I really develop a sense of what it means to be descended from Ulysses S. Grant, because people would ask me why I was named Ulysses and then react when I told them. And I realized that there's something critical in that moment that I begin to understand that being descended from Ulysses S. Grant means something. Right. Had you already done any research on Ulysses Grant? Did you really take the time to sit and study him and learn more about him and ask questions about him? Did you do that at that point? No, not remotely. But I think I was aware enough because I'm trying to think. I didn't read, I didn't read a book about U.S. Grant until I was an adult. And I'm, I'm trying to think even when I, what the first thing I would have read would have been his wife's memoirs. And I would have been in college when I did that. And there are reasons for that too. But this comes to mind because when I was in boarding school, we had to write a history paper on a political figure, on, on a famous American political figure. So we had to do research. We had to find a biography. We had, and, and I thought, oh, well, here's my chance. I'm going to write about Ulysses S. Grant. And then I thought, eh, I don't really want to because he was, as I said, he was not, I basically got made fun of for being descended from U.S. Grant because there were various mythologies around his name that had been promulgated by the lost cause historians of the early 20th century. You can see, get me going on that soapbox. So I really, I wasn't all that proud of it. I was fascinated by it, but so I actually picked another relative <laughs> who, who was a prominent conservative Republican from the early 20th century by the name of Elihu Root, who was my great-grandfather, my grandmother's father. I wrote about him. 
But it, it's so interesting that even when presented with that opportunity, I shied away from it because in 1970, there were really no good books on U.S. Grant, not one. All the books were full of mythology. And it would be well into my adulthood before that began to really change. Do you read any more when you were in college about Grant or his times? <laughs> this is sort of, this is an embarrassing question because really what high school taught me is that I, that I thought I didn't like history. So when I got to college, I focused on art history and French. I loved language. So I studied that. I was a French major in college, but I began to study art history because that was because what had come out of all of this, I think, and also growing up in Syracuse in the 60s, is that I was fascinated by historical architecture, by old houses and old buildings. I got very caught up in historic preservation, not activist, but just interested in it. And so I sort of steered that way. And when I got to university, I took a summer internship back in upstate New York at a historic house where my parents were spending the summer. They were spending their summer at Casanova Lake and there's a beautiful house at the end of it that had just opened as a museum. And I volunteered there for two summers and that's what flipped the switch into my career. That's when I began to come back to history was through the history of houses and the things inside houses. And then ultimately the people who owned the things and built the houses. So it's sort of this was this weird arc that I came back to history. And I didn't really study history again until I was in graduate school. And then only because it was a requirement. And by that point, I was fascinated by it because the books and the teachers were different. And history was really interesting. History was about American culture, not just about politics and war. So it was this sort of long evolution on my part. And U.S. Grant came into that at some point. In the mid-70s, they finally published the unpublished manuscript of Julia Grant's own memoirs that she wrote while her, after her husband died, but decided not to publish them because she didn't want to compete with the very successful ongoing sales of U.S. Grant's memoirs, which provided her with income. So, and then she died and nobody did anything. And it was my mother and her sisters who actually turned that manuscript over for publication. And that was the first real history of the Grant family I ever read was Julia's memoirs. So it was really the history of his life through the life of his wife. And that clearly altered the way I saw the world and saw history. But it was also very much part of where I was as a student is that I was really interested in the history of home and of daily life rather than war and politics. If that makes any sense to you, that's, that's how my mind was operating in the mid-70s. It makes a lot of sense to me because there are so many windows to history. There's so many areas of history that are fascinating. Some people are very interested in military history, and that's the way they get into it. But architecture is another way to get into it. Politics is another way to get into it. Some people are just interested in social history. You know, what was it like for the average person in your local area? What were they doing? Where were they meeting? What were they doing for fun? There's sports history. There's so many different ways to get interested in history because history is really just studying life. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, and that's what history should be. <laughs> history has gotten very caught up. And, you know, and part of it, as, you, as we were talking, I realized that 
part of it was again that the first really good history, the first good biography of U.S. Grant, other than his own memoirs, which I didn't read until I was really an adult, but the first biography of U.S. Grant that's not old school is 1981. I'm already living here in New Jersey. I'm not even in college. There are literally almost, there's Bruce Catton's 1950s series about U.S. Grant, which he really wrote on the notes of somebody else, but which was full of mythology and inaccuracy. You know, my grandfather wrote a biography of his grandfather, which I've never read, because it was all about my grandfather who went to West Point and was a general for the Army Corps of Engineers, wrote only about military and politics. And so I wasn't interested in that. It's really as the writing on history has begun to look at Grant as a human being and to look at his life as an American that he gets really, really interesting to me. And I'm understanding now that that's only happened in the last 30 years. So that's when I caught up. Got it. So your journey to uncover the life of Ulysses S. Grant was quite a long journey. It wasn't something that you weren't interested at all. And all of a sudden you were, and you're all up to, up to scratch on him. It was a process and it coincided with some of your own interests in homes and finding pieces of memoirs and books that you've been reading over time. And then his person starts to evolve a little bit in, in your mind who this person was. I, I did want to ask a question that I forgot to ask before. When you mentioned your grandfather, did your grandfather know General Grant, the child? Did he know the general? Yes. And no, I think, because my grandfather had just turned four when his grandfather died. And he was there, the whole family, they knew General Grant was dying. He went to Mount McGregor to settle into this hotel cottage that had been given to them by uh, the Drexel family of Philadelphia for the summer. And he went there knowing he was going to die, but hoping that he would finish his memoir before he died. So it was this bizarre kind of very Victorian thing. And it was kind of a wonderful thing because it was a death watch, but it was a death watch where everybody knew what the game was. All of his children were there and whatever grandchildren were available were there. It, this cottage had quite a lot of space and there was a big hotel right behind it. And so my grandfather and his parents and his big sister, Julia, were all there the whole time. And this only lasted a month and a half. So U.S. Grant goes there, he finishes the memoir, and he dies. And my grandfather is four years old. He has long blonde ringlets. He's a little boy in short pants. And that's his memory. But his life is shaped by that memory, even though nobody knows their grandfather really well at three years old. But he was very present in his grandfather's life uh, at a very formative little age. U.S. Grant, before he died, wrote a letter to whoever would be president when his grandson came of age and said, please make sure he gets a place at West Point. So my grandfather never had a choice about his life. He was destined for West Point from the time he was three years old. And that letter still exists. And William Tecumseh Sherman and then William McKinley both write on that letter. The family still owns it. So my grandfather went to West Point like his father and grandfather did. And he ends up being a general. But he was a very different kind of general from his father and his grandfather. So I think the shadow of the original general is a very long shadow that casts over many generations. And I didn't grow up in that shadow. I 
embraced it later as an adult because I realized I needed to know what was going on. And that's sort of a, that's another experience when I'm in my professional life already and already set up in, my, in the world. And then I'm confronted with my ancestry and realize I have to do something about it. That is absolutely remarkable. That letter, what a prize that must be. And also you know, for your grandfather already have uh, his life spelled out for him already. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. It's certainly a great endorsement to have, but what if he wanted to do something else? <laughs> well, and I guess, well, and he had, you know, my grandfather had a fascinating life. Again, I've thought a lot about this, but U.S. Grant and his wife were incredibly indulgent, permissive parents. They let their kids pretty much do what they wanted in their lives. I would say they spoiled them all, but birth order and age and all of that matters. I mean, Fred got dragged into the war with his father at Vicksburg, but Jesse, who was the youngest child, was in the White House through his entire teen years. And at the end of the White House experience, went off to college. So they had very different experiences. And my grandfather grew up as the namesake of the dead hero. And he grew up with a father who regretted his own sloppiness as a student and forced my grandfather to be a good student and to live up to the standards he didn't live up to. Except my great-grandfather married a fabulous woman. So that was a good thing. But it's so funny that you, and I've seen this happen with my own children. You swear you're not going to do what your parents do, but you do your own things to your children. So. But I somehow dodged a lot of that until basically I became a professional in the world of history. And I say that weirdly because I was a museum curator for my whole career, but I was very much tied into the history of daily life and the history of culture and including modern history. I studied and collected 20th century material and all of that. But it was interesting that it was, it became much easier to incorporate Ulysses S. Grant into my life once I had my own life organized. Right. Let's go back and talk about your career. You go to college and where did you actually, uh, did you go for your education? I was an undergrad at Yale University or Yale College as they call it, because university is the graduate school. And because I had no clue what I wanted to do with my life, I thought I would be a French major. Then I had this discovery that I wanted to be a curator because I realized you could get paid to work in historic houses. That seemed genius. So I started studying art history and architectural history. And Yale has a great decorative arts collection, household material, furniture, silver. And so I got very involved in that department. I'm still involved with that art museum today as, as a member and a committee person. So that all became very clear that I wanted to be a curator, the French major. I had to get a degree in something. And I've never regretted that because I love language and, and that didn't hurt in my career. But then I went to graduate school down at the University of Delaware in a program, what is now called the Winter Tour Program in American Material Culture. I think practically the only program with that name in the country. And so I was basically trained to be a museum curator, trained to be an expert interpreter of artifacts. And of course, people come with artifacts. So the, the people crept into all of this, but I was really about objects and their cultural context. And then I got this job in Newark, New Jersey as a curator of decorative arts for a very big, broad, messy collection. I was all by myself in this department. 
but they had a historic house that was built by a beer baron, Ballantine Beer, the official beer of the Yankees when I was a child, but I didn't know that. So the last of the Ballantine Beer Barons houses in Newark, New Jersey, which became my department, my bailiwick. But what I actually learned as part of all of that is I got sort of more interested in history as a sort of result of being interested in the objects. I found out that the, there had been a house where the museum stands in Newark today, built in the 1830s, lived in by a man named Marcus Ward, who was a close friend of Ulysses S. Grant, who stayed in that house and had his portrait painted in that house in Newark in the 19th century. So I suddenly began to find all these weird New Jersey connections to Ulysses S. Grant that made it feel that I was, I had ended up in the right place for my career. Being a romantic soul, this, this all began to feel rather fated, that I was where I was supposed to be and doing what I was meant to do. And I mean, I could go on in that vein a little bit, but uh, because, you know, U.S. Grant had a, there, the Summer White House was at the Jersey Shore down in Long Branch. Right to the end, it was a huge family retreat from Washington and New York. They would go to Long Branch. But also my great-grandfather, Fred, and his wife, after my grandfather was born, which was a very difficult birth, it was their last child, because it was difficult for my great-grandmother, Ida, they moved to Morristown, New Jersey, because of the political cartoonist, Thomas Nast, who was a friend of Fred's. And they moved to Morristown, New Jersey, and Fred commuted into New York every day on the same train that I took from Maplewood to Newark. Nobody in my family knew about this. I mean, there, there were references to Morristown, but it wasn't until I found my great-grandmother's letters that she talked about living in Morristown. And nobody in my family remembered that this had happened. Because when U.S. Grant goes bankrupt in 1884, the family gathers again in New York City. Because one, they've lost all their money. So they have to go to the one place that they own, which is this house in New York. And that's, so that's where my grandfather's memories really kick in is when he's a little boy living in that house in New York. So you heard before about the whole family being gathered in New York and your great, great grandfather writing his memoirs. And you also just mentioned now about the general having terrible financial problems. Can you elaborate on the urgency of General Grant's memoirs and his illness and why it was so important for him to finish those memoirs? I did finally read his memoirs. And I think I was quite literally, I was in Galena, Illinois, which is where they lived right before the Civil War. I was in the bookshop of the Historical Society and I saw a paperback, one volume of the memoirs. And I said, I can deal with that because I can read it on the train on the way to work. And so that's how I read the memoirs. And then as someone who loves 19th century literature, I was blown away at what a beautiful writer he was, that, that even this military stuff, this endless descriptions of battles, he was just an extraordinarily beautiful writer. So that was an important moment. But the only thing U.S. Grant ever did with great skill was be a warrior, was to be a general. He was actually pretty good. He was much better than people give him credit for as president. But he was not a great politician because he had, if I can be so bold, he had a kind of personal integrity that flew in the face of the way politics worked. And he was aware of that at the time, but he would not treat enemies the way politicians treat their enemies. So he was a constant target 
for people in his own party, as well as people who were against him in, in different political spectrums. By the way, his status as president has risen to number 20. And when I was a child, he was number two ahead of Harding. Now he's number 20 because he's considered, people have really studied his presidency and realized that he was quite extraordinary, even though he, like Eisenhower, like Washington, was not really trained to be a politician. He gets through this and at the end of his life is living what he thinks of as the high life in a mansion off of Fifth Avenue in New York City. He thinks he's rich. His name is attached to a big investment firm. And because of that, the money is pouring in, except what he doesn't understand. And his sons who talked him into this don't understand is that the man who runs the firm is basically running a Ponzi scheme. And eventually it all collapses, leaving the Grant family and all of their children bankrupt. And he's just thinking, oh, but they have the house and the family gathers in the house and he doesn't know what to do. And then he's exploring the idea of writing articles for magazines and getting paid for that because he's a, he knows he's a good writer. Nobody else knows he's a good writer, but he was the head of the debating team and was constantly being yelled at for reading novels at West Point. So he's very articulate and literate, but he doesn't know what to do with that. And then after this bankruptcy hits and humiliates him on top of bankrupting him, he finds out that he has inoperable throat cancer from all those years of smoking cigars. He probably could be cured now, but back then there was nothing to do about it. And that's when he decides he's gonna write his memoirs. And Mark Twain, Samuel Clemens steps in and says, I've just, created this publishing company with my son-in-law and I will give you an incredible deal if you let me publish your memoirs and so he gets going on that and in less than a year he writes 800 pages of beautifully articulate memoirs about his life up to the end of the civil war and that's of course the great disappointment is it ends with the civil war and then he dies and to me it's the most heroic thing any American did in the 19th century. I mean, nobody, none of the founding fathers, none of them match up to this, that while you're dying of throat cancer, you write an 800 page masterpiece about the civil war because he was anxious not only to make money, but to set the record straight, to tell the truth about what happened. And his civil war memoir is also understood to be extraordinarily accurate and dispassionate and fair. I mean, he criticizes people quite bluntly, but he isn't biased. He tells the truth. And he also, it makes something along the lines of $450,000 in 1885 cash for his wife, which is a huge fortune, like millions today. So he sets his wife up for the rest of her life by doing this. After I read the memoir and began to understand its magnitude, I really began to sort of get into it. <laughs> I think the memoir that he wrote, it really, it does speak volumes about who he was. I know I've been interested in presidents since I was probably nine or 10 years old. And I always remember seeing a photograph of him wrapped in a, in a blanket with a wool cap on and he's writing to think. I recently had a rotten cold. I mean, I felt lousy and I couldn't even think of doing anything with a little cold. You know, I just felt lousy. 
when I felt that way, I was actually thinking about, because I was reading up on Grant, and I just thought to myself the courage that that man had and that passion to provide for his family to, as you said, set the record straight. He must have felt absolutely awful. I recently was reading a book about his later years and he felt awful. He had terrible pain in his throat and it must have been a real struggle to write, but not only write, but write, as you said, so well, I've not read his memoirs, but that's something I have to make it a point to read because when you read it, not only are you reading his thoughts and the history of it and the richness of it, but to read it knowing how he was feeling and how ill he was and how important he felt this was, that adds another uh, flavor to it that makes it that much more important to read. So yeah, and it's uh, this can be off the record if you want it to be, but something that in writing about him in my memoir, I added a, I, I did a whole series of fictional chapters called Speculations, which were about things related to my family that I didn't really know the truth about. I wrote a story that was a scenario and, and I've added, I put one in there because it, I realized it mattered a lot to me is that it's a kind of a magical time travel thing where I find myself in a strange house and realize that I'm in their house on 66th Street in the winter of 1884. And I go there and I realize that he's upstairs working on his memoirs and it's winter, it's snowing. And I go upstairs and I introduce myself and find out that he knows who I am because my name is Dietz and he knows who my great, great grandfather is who has a factory downtown. The whole point of this is I've picked up on a whole Dickens thing because he loved Dickens and I love Dickens. But I basically am there to tell him that writing the memoirs is worth it. He's writing the memoirs, he's dying of cancer, and he's seeing that everything he worked for as president has been destroyed by his own party and that Black people are being suppressed and that civil rights are being crushed. And, you know, he's just watching everything he cared about collapsing, even as he's desperate to try to save his family from poverty. So I go in this dreamlike thing and I go and basically say, don't worry, in 150 years, you're going to be more famous than ever and you'll be a hero. I wish I could do that because he had no idea. He was just not only feeling lousy, but not knowing if it was going to work, that if his legacy would be anything. And for a long time, it wasn't. My grandfather grew up with his diminishing legacy. You know, people didn't go to the tomb. People didn't respect him. They thought of him as a, a butcher and a drunk and a stupid man and a bad president. And I've seen all of that reversed in my life. So that's a good thing. That is a very good thing. I've always had a very high opinion of General Grant, the way he treated the defeated Confederate army at the end of the war with compassion. He just seemed like a, I don't know, there was just, I, I heard he loved animals. He certainly loved his horses. And he also, when I read about him taking care of his family in his last days by writing those memoirs, just those things together. I, I always read that, you know, his, as a president, he was terrible. There was corruption in his administration, not him personally, but other people. I don't know. I, I just saw some of the, the compassion that he had for his family and for a defeated army, the army he had defeated. Uh, it just spoke, 
in my heart that he seemed like a pretty good guy, somebody I would really like. Yeah. Yeah. And I've definitely, that's become sort of the focus of what my interest is in reading about him now is really not the military stuff because I buy that. I'm interested in the presidency because, and I've read quite a bit about that now. The way I was taught to understand Reconstruction as a child was basically a lie. And I won't go into it more than that, but basically it was spun in a way that made Grant look bad when in fact Reconstruction was the most important thing he ever did. And it was destroyed by his own party after he was out of office for expediency. Of course, it speaks very much to the issues we're facing as a country right now. This has all come back to bite us in the ass. And this is all validation of what we should have been doing. But his personality is that I've read a lot of the biographies, not all of them, but I've read a lot of the biographies of U.S. Grant. And I love the ones that focus on how other people thought of him, that they've done research into other people's memoirs and letters and diaries saying, you know, U.S. Grant was a really smart, funny guy to talk to one-on-one. And he and his wife were so much fun together, and they were the most loving couple I've ever met. That's the kind of thing that really resonates with me. I just finished reading His Youngest Child is the only child who wrote memoirs that were published in the 1920s. So here's a kid born in 1858 and who has seen the world change, has survived World War I, and is only in his late 60s at this point. I don't agree with everything he says, but he really sees his father's world. And it's fascinating because he corrected a lot of my misunderstandings about how U.S. Grant lived just as a person. So that kind of thing is what really interests me. There are people I have sat with Civil War buffs and gone through long nighttime discussions over cigars, which I tried to smoke, about Shiloh. (laughs) It's like, like, I don't care. But, and you know, and the thing is the military stuff, because that's part of the joy of it, that he was a brilliant military strategist. He knew Napoleon's battles. He was really good at that at West Point. He was a great student and he knew his stuff, which is why he won, not because he had the biggest army, because he was a better general. And he also knew what a war was. He didn't pretend that a war was some noble thing, that a war was a meat grinder and that you won it. And he used technology. He managed a war across thousands of miles because of the telegraph of the railroad. I mean, he was very modern man. And that actually is part of the stuff that translated into his presidency, that he, in fact, was a very savvy manager of big things. He just was naive when it came to uh, human nature, because he believed essentially that people were good and he was wrong. <laughs> Ulysses, I remember reading this, and I forget exactly the wording of it, but that somebody said to Abraham Lincoln when uh, Ulysses S. Grant at that point had been promoted, and uh, somebody said to Lincoln, you know, he's, he's a drunk. You know, he drinks a lot of whiskey, what have you. And Lincoln said in return, he says, find out what he drinks, and I'm going to send it to all my other generals. <laughs> So now my story relative to that, and I wish I could remember exactly where I read it, because Lincoln knew about that story, but actually said that he had never said that. 
but he knew that people said that he had said that. So he sort of said, okay, I can believe I would have said that, but I don't think I did. I mean, that's what I'm sort of remembering. But it was this, it started really early that his political and military, in the military, generals who disliked him because he didn't give them what they wanted, started spreading these rumors about his drinking. And, you know, every historian who tackles this does it in a different way. And I'm still, in spite of some really good cogent arguments based on the fragments, I'm still not sure we know, because as his own wife said, well, why wouldn't he drink? <laughs> Look at what he went through. <laughs> but anyway, I keep that in my mind a lot because he had, someone asked me this recently, from the very beginning, once it became clear that he saw the war as being about not just saving the union, but freeing the slaves. And that didn't happen right away. Once he realized that it was about crushing slavery, killing off slavery, then he became an enemy of lots of people, North and South, because the North depended on the slave economy for their money, you know, the textile mills. Newark was a big center of production for slave shoes. So the leather industry depended on the South. The slave economy was huge, it was one of the biggest economies in the world. And Grant set out to destroy it because it was immoral. That does come from his abolitionist roots. There's no question about that. But he instantly becomes a target. He has a, a target on his back from that moment on. So that's like from Fort Donaldson on. As soon as he becomes famous, he becomes a target. So I like that about him. <laughs> I do too. I do too. How would you say your life was impacted by being the great-great-grandson of General Ulysses Grant? It's not as difficult as it might be because I've actually thought about it. I mean, the pandemic was really useful. <laughs> I spent a lot of time thinking and, and talking to people. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm on the board of the U.S. Grant Association, and I take that role seriously. Let's put it this way. Someone came up to me once and said, what was the last book on U.S. Grant you read? Seriously. <laughs> and I looked at her and I thought, have I ever read a book on U.S. Grant? I was already involved with the U.S. Grant Association, so I said, this is embarrassing. But right now, where I sit at my age in retirement, I think U.S. Grant has had a huge impact on my life, but it didn't start seriously until I was in my early 30s. I got more and more interested and informed, but not hugely. And I think it was when I, I actually was invited to speak at Grant's tomb in 1987. So I was, that was the summer I turned 32. And I don't know what I said. I got up and I said, blah, 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 something sweet and supportive. And I'm a proud descendant of U.S. Grant. Thank you for inviting me. And then without any warning, I was introduced to somebody on live news, Channel 4 in New York City, to a woman who claimed that her late husband, whose name was Ulysses, had been an illegitimate descendant of U.S. Grant. This is without any preparation. The Park Service just sprang this on me on live television. And the woman who was introduced to me was equally surprised. She had no clue this was going to be done as a publicity stunt. And this was the way U.S. Grant was seen by the people who ran the tomb. This wasn't about history. This was about headlines and popular sentiment. And I suddenly thought, you know, these people don't understand what they're dealing with. And that you, one, you don't. And so I wrote them a letter saying, if you ever expect the family 
as if I could speak for the whole family. It's a big family and I don't know most of them. But if you ever expect the family to be involved in Grant's tomb, you got to sharpen up. And that started a long relationship. I still, I gave a speech at Grant's tomb virtually this year. And I don't go every year because sometimes I'm traveling for something, but I've gotten very attached to Grant's tomb and begun to understand what it really means. There's a whole brand new book about Grant's tomb by a man named Louis Pacone, who's a New Jersey scholar. I'll just say that. And it really tells the story of the tomb. And that was kind of a jumping off point in 1987. And over those next 10 years, I got very involved in a lawsuit against the Department of the Interior and the Park Service. And the Park Service, because they were being denied funding by the Department of the Interior, because U.S. Grant wasn't important, therefore his tomb wasn't important, and the tomb was in Harlem, and nobody goes to Harlem, so who cares? And, And that had all been sort of embraced by the Park Service. And I had to step in and say, no, this is important. This man is important. This place is important. And therefore, I had to learn who he was. So when I went back to give speeches, I could say something that mattered and wasn't just me blathering off the top of my head. So I think that moment between 87 and 97, when I walk up Riverside Drive with Rudy Giuliani, who is the mayor of New York then, and we rededicate Grant's tomb in this huge ceremony, and I give a 20-minute speech. That's my transformation from somebody who was just a namesake to somebody who was really a banner carrier. Or I carried the torch for U.S. Grant and his memory. And the tomb is no longer the centerpiece for me. I love the tomb because it's an amazing thing. It's a symbol of how important he was because nobody else in America ever got anything like that. But it also, the, the history of the tomb is also the history of, of how his reputation was ground into the mud by his enemies and resurrected by people who decided they wanted to tell the truth. So that's how it's, you can tell just because I can even talk about it now, I can actually get in front of a camera and talk about U.S. Grant without any embarrassment now, because I don't know everything, but I do know enough to feel that I know who he is. And it's an interesting thing, and I, and I say this with all sincerity, is that I really love him. I think I really know who he is better than I knew my grandfather because I've really studied him and I know what he was as a person. And he's somebody I'm really proud to be descended from because I would like to be as brave as he is. And I don't think I am. And I don't think any of his children were. (laughs) So he's somebody really to look up to. And I'm very glad he spent his summers at the Jersey Shore. I wish they'd kept the house. (laughs) Ulysses. Is the home that General Grant lived in in Long Branch still there? No, the family sold it off after he, maybe during his cancer, because I think they needed money. But the house actually survived. Again, everything survives until I'm born, and then they tear down everything. It survived very altered, much expanded until the 1950s. But by that point, the beach had started to encroach. There were a lot of houses built right on the beach on the Jersey Shore. And almost all of those houses, all up and down the shore, have disappeared. But the, so, but the Grand House was torn down in the 1950s. And in fact, the only house left, uh, the house he lived in in New York, was torn down in the 20s. But the house in Galena that was given to him by the city of Galena in 1865, that's still there, and not only still there, but totally intact, and a sort of a revered site. And the irony is. 
he didn't really live there very long because once he got to Galena and got this house, he was so famous, he didn't want to stay in Galena. And the house in Washington they lived in is gone. The White House is there, but all of Julia's interiors are gone. And the only other house is the, uh, the house he died in. So the house he spent a month and a half in is still, again, intact, preserved as this shrine to the man who died there. So the house he was born in is still there. <laughs> but, but the really the houses that really interest me, like the house on 66th Street in New York, they're gone, so too bad. Ulysses, you said something that really touched me when you said, I actually love him. I think that is so wonderful from, from so many points because over time you've learned, over years you've learned more and more about him and you've approached him from many different angles. It speaks to me as a person who loves history, how you can become introduced to people of the past and learn more and more about those people. And they become part of your family, not, yeah. not just through DNA or through a family tree or something like that, but where you can actually come to understand somebody, understand their heart, understand how they have impacted your family through other ancestors. And by the way, it's also very interesting at the same time, because how often do people take the time to study their family trees and not just when they were born or died, but who they were as a person. You and I had a conversation before, and I asked you, of all your ancestors, now you had you know, your grandfather, you had um, Elihu Root was your great-grandfather, your great-grandfather, yeah. great you know, you had other military people in your family, some fascinating women in your family, and I asked you, of all your ancestors, which one would you want to sit and have a cup of coffee with? And you told me. <laughs> that's a leading question. But yes, I really would love to be able, I mean, that's where that sort of fantasy story in my memoir came from, is that I would love to be able to sit with U.S. Grant and talk to him. Being somewhat of a fantasy reader and understanding the paradoxes of time travel, <laughs> I wouldn't want to screw things up. But I would love to talk to him and find out what he really felt. I mean, his, the biggest problem with U.S. Grant is that one, he didn't live longer and he didn't write the next book in his memoirs, which was about the presidency. Because God, we would all love to read what he really felt about that. And then to read about the rest of his life from his own point of view. I'd love to be able to sit and talk in one. I, I'd tell him to cut out the cigars. <laughs> Although, <laughs> I guess that's too late. And weirdly enough, I would love to talk to him about the war because I would love to really delve into how he felt, how he really felt about things. Because it's very, he hints at things that are fascinating and profound and they get quoted over and over again. But I know that his feeling about stuff really evolved. There, there's this famous instance that through his father-in-law who was a slave owner, he acquires a slave of his own named Jones, a 30 something year old man. So a very valuable slave and Grant has no money. He's working this like crummy farm in, in St. Louis on his father-in-law's property. And after less than a year, he takes this male slave and sets him free. And, and his value is worth more than his family's income for the year. And I'd love to say, I'm thrilled that he did that, but I would love to say, 
what were you feeling? This was just because clearly your own upbringing and your own discomfort at working with your father-in-law's slaves in the fields at his farm, clearly something is going on there and you can't bring yourself to sell this man. You have to set him free. It's stuff that's so hard for us to even grasp today in the sort of overheated atmosphere of our culture. But this is a man who lived with it all around him and didn't approve of it ever, but didn't really worry about it much until it became his duty to defend the country that was fighting to keep the secessionists from winning. And then, and I would love to just find out how all of his thinking evolved. I think you can write something else in your, uh, in your <laughs> memoirs that will talk about that actual cup of coffee instead of him just being upstairs, right? <laughs> memoirs. <laughs> uh, there might be too much research involved in that. <laughs> so if you could summarize your great-great-grandfather Ulysses S. Grant's heart, and maybe you have to fill in some of the blanks with just maybe what you just think or what you gather or what have you, but how would you spell out what his heart was? I'm hesitating because I'm trying to think of how to articulate it. I think it's pretty clear that he loved his country, but not unblinkingly. He saw the flaws, but I think the one thing that he loved unconditionally was his wife and his children. It just seems so clear from both sides of that fence, from what the children have written and from what Julia's written, that he, the thing that made him happiest in the world was being with his wife and children. There, there's a lot of mythology around all of his failures and he was poor and he had to sell wood on the street. Well, he did. That was his business was selling wood cordwood to St. Louis from his farm because it was a wooded farm. But there's this all this discussion that he was so miserable and then he got stuck going to Galena and working in his father's shop at some menial clerk position. And it was failure, failure, failure. But all he writes about is these were the happiest days of my life because I was with my wife and children. And that's all he cares about. And then the war comes along and he thinks I've got to go do something. Not, oh, I'm going to make money and be famous. Is that the union has been broken. I have to stop it. So I think what he cared about most was his family and whatever it took to keep his family together. And I really do think that's what it comes down to. And that seems pretty simplistic, but it's everything I've read about it seems to come back to that. Everything he did was ultimately about getting back to his family. And if that meant bringing the country back together so that his family was back together, that's what he did. I think he had feelings about how he was seen in the world, but he was not an egomaniac. He was never in it for himself. He was in it for his wife and his children. And I think that's the strongest legacy he left his children was that sense that they were beloved. And, I, and I'll just throw this in because having just read Jesse's memoir that he writes, and I love this, he said, all of us grew up feeling that we were the most loved child and only as adults did we compare notes and realize that we all felt this way. And I think that's quite an extraordinary thing. I think there were no favorites. They were each loved for who they were. And, you know, for good or for ill, that's the way it worked. It certainly sounds to me that General Grant, your great-great-grandfather, was an amazing guy. It sounded like he just had a really, he had a big heart and his family was number one. But as you said, he fought for his country because that would make it a better place for his family. And 
certainly uh, when he wrote his memoirs and the condition he was in just sort of really illustrated how much he loved his family and what he was willing to do for his family. My hope is that President Grant will go from number 20 up the ladder as the years go on and more things are said about him. And this has just been wonderful, Ulysses, because you've taken us along the journey of finding out who General Ulysses Grant was and kind of what made him tick, but it kind of your journey as well, how he became somebody that you felt you knew enough to say, hey, I loved him. I loved who I found out about. I loved who he is and what you know about him. And I think it's an encouragement for many of us who are just maybe unlocking some people in our family trees. And there may be some people we don't love very much at all that may pop up. I mean, it happens. But in the case of General Grant, I really appreciate what you're doing to share your information, what you've learned with our listeners. And I also think, by the way, the job of a museum curator must be absolutely fascinating. It's one of those things I think, wow, would I, would I love just to spend a day seeing what a curator does? My family is originally from Newark, New Jersey, so it's of interest to me, and we'll have to have some more sidebar conversations yeah. on that. But I want to ask you, what are you up to today? What, what kind of projects do you have on the horizon? <laughs> I saw that on your list of questions. Uh, what am I up to today? I, I actually, I've got some reading to do. I've already had all my exercise for the day. But one of the things I'm actually doing now is working through the editing of this memoir, which has been to an editor and come back with 5,000 suggested changes. And I'm not joking, literally 5,000. So it's going to take me a long time <laughs> to get through it. And the memoir, which I can't seem to find a publisher for, so I will probably go the route of self-publication, but I'll have a good manuscript, is called Growing Up Grant, which was suggested to me as a title by the head of the U.S. Grant Association, the executive director, John Marzalek, of whom I'm very fond. And I just thought it's sort of a great title because it's both growing up as who I was, but with my name. It's about, it, the book is very centered on, obviously, because it's a memoir, but it's centered on my identity and how my name becomes this sort of key element in my identity. Going through edits on a computer, as you probably know, is exhausting and I easily distracted <laughs> my age. So that's the main thing now. Basically, the other things I've got going on in my life are continuing with Zoom stuff now that that's part of our world and trying to figure out how to readjust to an increasingly post-pandemic world. Because I was very comfortable being inside for 10 months. <laughs> and, and I find I can't just hide in my house for the rest of my life. So, so little by little, I'm going to figure out what to do. But U.S. Grant plays a large role in my life because that's sort of one of my activities now. Reading, writing, trying to get exercise, and just keep ahead of things, I guess. That's what I'm doing these days. It's been a privilege to speak with you, and I'm going to be following along to see when those memoirs come out, because I definitely want to read them, and because you've given us a glimpse of your journey, and I think it's just fascinating. And Ulysses S. Grant was one of those presidents that always interested me, and I want to do some more extensive reading. I am going to be interviewing Louis Pacone, who wrote the book on Grant's tomb, 
very shortly. He's going to be on our podcast. So we want to find out more about what he's doing. This has been wonderful. And I hope that as we are now emerging from the pandemic, that you're going to be out there more. I, I'm going to be looking for you, maybe speaking again at Grant's tomb someday. I'd like to come back and visit. I don't think I've been to Grant's tomb since the 70s. And when I was there, wow. it wasn't pretty. Yeah, well, it's a lot better now. And, you know, next year is Grant's bicentennial. And I am on the U.S. Grant Bicentennial Commission <laughs> as the, the chairman of the Descendants Committee. I think that's my title. So I'm very much involved in whatever is going to happen. I'm, I'm going to be writing an essay about the family for a publication for the Bicentennial for next year. So I'd forgotten about that again. <laughs> just thought, oh my God, I have to write that. But uh, that's part of what I'm doing now is thinking about that. So next year is going to be a big year. Actually, we're hoping that all the grant sites across the country will be doing sort of coordinated programming with the U.S. Grant Association to sort of get the word out because it'll be a big year. And I'll be at the tomb, no question. I'll be staying tuned for that. And I wanted to close by saying, what an honor it is to speak with you. And I think you and I spoke about this, I think via email, but my great-great-grandfather was a private in the 104th Pennsylvania Volunteer Infantry. And he saw action at Petersburg, Virginia. I'm just wondering right now what he would think about me speaking with the great-great-grandson of his general. <laughs> I just think that's kind of a cool thing. And as we all start to research our family roots, we might find some really fascinating people. It may not be somebody you can Google, but uh, there's a lot more research tools at our fingertips now. And sometimes it involves going to libraries and still doing the old fashioned digging and finding books and actually reading through large books and uh, just gleaning some great information about people in our family trees. Well, as, as I tell everybody, we all have the same number of ancestors, no matter who we are. The truth is out there. Yes, it is. Ulysses, thanks again. I hope you have a great day. You too. Okay. Bye, James. Bye-bye now. So, for all of our listeners, keep discovering and telling stories that inspire you and others. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. Please subscribe, share, and check out our website at yourhistoryyourstory.com for episode notes and bonus content. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.